0: Dental Safety Pro, brought to you by Vivid Learning Systems and the Health and Safety Institute, episode number seven. My name is Jill James, Vivid's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Dr. Todd Lushin, who is Associate Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater and Coordinator of Internships and Fieldwork in the Occupational and Environmental Safety and Health Department. Welcome, Todd.
1: Thank you, Jill. Great to be here.
0: So for our listeners today... We should probably let them know and disclose the fact that you and I know each other and we've known each other for a really long time, which either makes us feel really old or I'm not sure what else. But it's been over 20 years, Todd, that you and I have known each other. Yeah,
1: 24 years.
0: We, it just so happens that we've known one another longer than our uh, respective spouses and partners. Right. <laughs> uh, and, we, and we met uh, professionally a long time ago when we were both in our 20s, and we're clearly not in our 20s anymore. Not even close. <laughs> so, Todd, I wanted to let the audience know that the inspiration and idea behind this podcast the accidental safety professional, actually came from, from your head. It was an idea that you shared with our focus group here at Vivid Learning Systems a number of months ago. And, um, you, you were talking about, um, you know, how we don't necessarily have an opportunity to get to talk with one another professionally very often, unless we're at a conference or something and how, you know, you were thinking of like, how could we share information with each other professionally? And, um, you suggested a podcast and then, yeah, remember?
1: Right. And I mean the whole, you know, premise of it is well, one, I have a long commute. You know, I commute 45-50 minutes each way and I'm just listening to talk radio and it'd be nice and I know that audiobooks are becoming very popular. And I just thought it'd be really nice if the safety profession itself. I mean, we have a few conferences we can go to. Um and we have LinkedIn, of course, but to be able to hear what other people are going through, hear their ideas because that's one of the biggest questions that comes out of a lot of the meetings in which we have Uh, two-way communication is, could you, you know, we want to know what's working for you or what issues you've resolved Mm -hmm. in order to become successful because everybody feels like they're reinventing the wheel.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We do. And it's, and it's always because we're usually the solo operator, wherever it is that we're working. And out of that idea for the podcast, you and I were talking about how we often are asking safety professionals, how they got into the practice um, accidentally and what you've always called it is the incidental safety professional which was actually a topic of a keynote that you gave what was that a year or two ago it, it may
1: have been three years now the time is irrelevant <laughs> when you get this old <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah it, it, it's available well, maybe it's not available online but I think people could watch it through my LinkedIn page I think I have a, a link to it if not I can definitely make that available but it, it's about defining the profession who are we I mean we we really don't know who we are and it's interesting. Interesting to uh, read what people post or listen to people present at conferences or meetings. There, there are some common commonalities, but if we compare ourselves as a profession to other more traditional professions, uh, sovereign professions like law, medicine, things like that, we don't have the same requirements in order to practice. We're mm. very much a today. I think I'm going to do some safety work, and and I think that detracts from uh what the the people who have been in this field and gone through the formal education gone through certification have come to learn uh but you know th- there there's success to be found anywhere when it comes to safety, because we're just preventing bad things from happening. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's what we want to talk about today is for those of you who are listening, who didn't have, who <laughs> fell into it. And what was funny is uh, I remember back when I started, I was doing a presentation with Todd. Remember Todd in consultation? Yes, I do. And he he said to a group, you know, someone called me the other day and uh, for assistance on developing a safety program because I just became the safety person. And his immediate response was, well, what did you do wrong? (laughs) (laughs) and that's always kind of carried with me that Uh geez how did you you know come in today and it it was it's usually someone who just cares Mm -hmm. and they want to help and maybe they came up with an idea And management recognized that. And so therefore, they want that person to come up with more ideas. But, you know, Mm -hmm. was it was it chance or is it something intrinsic to the person to protect others and Mm -hmm. to have the ingenuity to come up with uh, work solutions, uh, training ideas, whatever it might be to help mitigate those exposures that result Mm -hmm. in injury.
0: Mm-hmm. so you have your you have your story or your recollection of a, a fellow coworker of ours Todd. on what did you do wrong and my recollection is um numbers of people when i asked them how they got their job they would sometimes answer i got hurt and i got hurt more than once and my boss finally looked at me and said you know you must know how to prevent this now congratulations you're the safety person so <laughs> the injured person moniker um but you and you and i didn't come into the practice that way and i'm and I'm um, interested for you to share your story about how you became an incidental safety pro um, yourself way back when. What's your what, what was your journey?
1: Well, I mean, if, if it, we want to go way back to the beginning, you know, at, at the beginning of time, there was no <laughs>
0: <laughs> stone tablets. Right. Exactly.
1: Um, I went to college because um, to study engineering. I love solving problems. I've always been a problem solver all my life. Want to fix things, want to f- see how things work. And I fell into chemical engineering as my degree program. I thought, hey, sounds cool. And I did get to find out how a lot of things work and how to design things. I enjoyed it. But there was one lecture in which they talked about some case studies, and it was the um, refinery explosion, Texas City, Texas. I mm-hmm. can't even remember the year. Uh, and when I heard that, I imme- that day I decided I don't want to be a chemical engineer because I don't want to blow anything up. Mm. And so I... I pursued an emphasis in environmental engineering. So I took all kinds of courses on uh, pollution control, whether it's through a stack, whether it's through a water stream, whether it's hazardous materials. And I was expecting to work for, um, in Minnesota, they have the Pollution Control Agency, which is kind of the state equivalent of the EPA. That's what I wanted to do. That's the Environmental Protection Agency. I should spell out acronyms. Mm -hmm. But in getting on the state list to interview for the PCA, Minnesota OSHA also draws from that list. And although I went through a couple interviews with the PCA and was expecting a call for a possible position, OSHA called. And they said, "Hey, do you want an interview?" And you don't say no when somebody says you want an interview, especially in 1994 when the job market was not good. Right. And uh, you know, they showed me all these tools I get to use because I was interviewing for an industrial hygiene engineer position. They train mm-hmm. chemical engineers to do that work. Uh, it's a natural transition, and I got excited. I thought it'd be pretty cool to carry a badge and tell people to jump and make them cry. And so, and <laughs> we didn't.
0: We didn't really do that. People well, cry. Maybe so We didn't tell them to jump. But that's they true. cry. Yeah.
1: That was uh, <laughs> just incidentally, and. And um, it was interesting, too, is I actually had the same day I got the offer. I actually had accepted a consulting job helping a company pursue ISO 9001. Mm. So I, it was interesting. So I, I, I had two things going on at once. But um, once the consulting job um, wrapped up, I, I actually I loved working for OSHA. I really did. Mm-hmm. Um, you learn something new every day. You get to see so many different companies and you really feel like you're making a difference but there was um there was a time later in my career um i didn't really t- i spent 1 year out in private industry as a product manager um mm-hmm. where where i built a lot of my business and sales and marketing and um finance skills but when i came back uh there was a, a complaint that i went on and it was a uh small machine shop it was essentially a guys pole barn <laughs> it is mm-hmm. backyard and the, the owner was the safety director was the hr director was the maintenance guy he was everybody and mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. had staff of like nine and i asked for the safety programs to have none i asked um you know do you keep logs nope no poster, you know, the thousand dollar poster as we yep. call it. Yep. Uh, I said, all right, let's go to the, let's go to the walk around because there's nothing to look at here. And there are hazards. There's lack of guarding. They had created their own um, spray booth, which violated most of the standard. But what I hmm. noticed is, is the owner knew everybody's name and knew something mm-hmm. personal about them. And when mm-hmm. I, you know, separated to go talk to the workers, I found out they knew there were issues. They just didn't put their hand where the harm was. And, you know, nobody had been hurt in like their full operation. Like, Ten years, so I thought that was interesting. You know, no compliance whatsoever, a lot of safety. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Two days later, I go to a Fortune 100 company on a complaint, and the safety director is very well known. Their safety programs are immaculate. I mean, I think they actually gave off some sort of aura because they were so (laughs) divine, shiny, Uh right? (laughs) And so, you know, this person's super well known. And so, we go out to the area where the complaint is, and it's clean. I don't see any issues. I said, you know, just excuse me for a second. I'm going to go talk to these workers just so I can close out my report. And this is going to be what we used to term a drive by. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm like letting everybody know our secrets. And (laughs) these workers just went off. This is the worst place ever. They hide things. They make us do stuff. Now I didn't have any um, evidence for citations, but that experience Where full safety, but workers are complaining and saying they're getting hurt versus no safety, workers are saying we don't get hurt, really confounded my view of our practice. And that's Mm -hmm. when I really set myself on a path to go to graduate school, Mm -hmm. to learn about the social um, the psychological side of safety.
0: Hmm. Makes so much sense. And you're so right about the observations we were able to make in that job. And just, just so the audience understands, the where you and I met was um, at Minnesota OSHA as investigators um, in, our, in our 20s. And we were able to work together on investigations sometimes. And yeah, you just did let out a little bit of secrets. Um, I don't know that I ever made anybody personally cry I'm not sure I know I got a lot of red like sort of flushing in the face that kind of thing Um, people cried during fatality investigations but anyway um yeah. Your observation is so 100% correct. After being in over 500 workplaces, you get to make these observations and sometimes they hit you right in the face and stick with you forever. So that prompted you to, to take your next leap and go back to school.
1: It did. And I got I, again, I, I think my life is just a, a story of, of fortune and luck. But um, I did take a few courses at the University of Minnesota while I was working mm-hmm. for the consultation side. Mm-hmm. And my it, it wasn't what I needed though. It was more of the transportation, extreme environments, human factor studies, Mm -hmm. and I wanted more organizational design and management and social psychology, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So my advisor connected me with um, Dr. Michael Smith at UW-Madison, and I went down there and met with him, and he convinced me to pursue a doctorate, (laughs) and I said yes. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, packed up the the car and drove to Madison, and it was one of the greatest you know, six and a half years of my life to be able to really learn, really develop the skill set. And if for people who don't know, and I think a lot of people don't know what the whole pursuit of a PhD is, it's to answer the question regularly, what I don't know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I thought I knew safety. I really, I thought it was awesome. I, you know, this kid knows what he's doing. But when I got there, I couldn't just say, well, based on my experience this is what I know. I would have to reference some some form of research or a technical publication or something and possibly argue for its validity, mm-hmm. its reliability. And through that exercise, which was painful, it's not it's not easy for everybody. I mean, I'm mentoring graduate students now in their master's level and they do struggle. You know, they have ideas, but when it gets to the point where you really have to argue, defend, debate your viewpoint, which you collected and in its interpretation, that's when you start realizing, I have to be more careful. And, mm-hmm. you know, I took all kinds of methods courses and stats courses. And I've, it just, it's through replication, trial and error and failure that you, you sort of become And uh, a scientist, and through that experience, they award you, you know, with the the doctorate, the PhD. And so that's what it really comes down to. So anybody who rushes to uh, complete like a doctorate, uh, you got to realize it's not the degree itself; it's the pain, it's the enjoyment, it's (laughs) the revelations that you go through in the pursuit of it that that makes you become a scientist. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the important distinction um, that people need to hear about.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And so your PhD is in human factors.
1: It's industrial engineering, but you're industrial correct. Yeah. The emphasis was human factors, but then I spread my wings and studied quality management through the business school there. I studied um, social inquiry through the sociology department. I learned uh, research methods and statistics through the psychology department. So it, it, it was a, it was more of a, diverse degree than anything else. I was located within the industrial engineering department, but it, it I was all over campus.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So for people listening who are thinking or maybe they're already on their path to earn a Ph.D., first of all, I'm going to just guess and you probably know this, Mr. Scientist, that I'm I'm guessing there aren't very many Ph.D.'s practicing in safety right now. And if there are, what sort of focuses have you seen? Um, ones that are very similar to yours or really different?
1: Very similar. Um, I, I mean, industrial engineering is really des- the design of work. So that's Mm -hmm. how I practice safety. I practice it from the the study of the design of work, the worker, how they interact with management, the technologies that are afforded to them, what they expect to do for tasks, things like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, other PhDs, maybe industrial engineering, but maybe focus on more of the human factors ergonomic side. There are um, doctorates in industrial hygiene. They practice in safety. Um, There are some scientific doctorates and some educational doctorates that maybe focus more on the educational aspects of it, but they do have the components of being able to do research, it tends to be more towards the engineering education management type doctorates that sure. allow people, give people the access to, you know, either teaching or researching and safety. But then, you know, uh, the the life of an academic is a, um, y- you're not paid as well as if you were in private industry. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to go too far into it, but L- um, like yeah. government
0: work. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the reward comes through the, you know, the experience and free them, not not the um, how big your paycheck is.
0: Right, right. So when when I briefly describe you as my friend and your professional practice, I often say that you're growing the safety professionals of tomorrow through your work at the at the university right now. And you ha- you have this unique unique take on the profession based on the history and you know kind of what you've seen and the practitioners who are practicing safety. Many of us accidental, many of us without necessarily a formal background in it. And so I'm wondering if maybe we could talk with our audience Audience today and share some stories about you know, maybe if you just got that job dumped in your lab and you don't have a background in it, you know, what certificates are out there, or what pursuit could someone who's just starting out right now who wants to know more? how could they do some self-education or maybe what could their employer do to help support them?
1: That's a really great question. I think that's one that a lot of people struggle with. Um, you you don't have to have a degree to practice. You don't have to have a certification to practice. I just want to get that out there. It's not a yes. legal requirement. No, it is against the law to claim you have those things and not ha- and you don't, so keep that in mind as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I tell my students, um, I mean, I don't see what I do as filling their heads with facts and data. I train them the same way I was trained as both an engineer and a scientist. It's through an application of the learning technique and through frequent reflection of what you're doing, trying to apply it, that you become a better thinker, a better problem solver. So let's get that out right away that to Mm -hmm. practice in safety, one, you need to really care about people. Two, you need to be an active problem solver. Mm -hmm. So from there, how can people gain more knowledge? Um, I also tell my students your your net worth is your network you need to know people you need (laughs) to get involved isn't that kind of funny so true that is so
0: (laughs) awesome (laughs) right because if
1: you I mean if I you and I both know if we have a question we know who to contact Right? right. We know who the experts are. And I, and I, therefore, trying to practice safety in a vacuum is, oh man, that would be really frustrating. I can't imagine. But, and so there may be people here on this podcast listening thinking, yeah, that's what I do. I'm trying to read the standards on my own or mm-hmm. trying to find out what's going on. You'd need access to the profession. And everybody who's a true professional gives. You know, unselfishly, just uh, get involved with look and see if you have a local safety council group, because um, a lot of, you know, each state has their own safety council. And then there are usually local safety councils. There may be local chapters of ASSP, whatever safety group you can get involved with and try to, you know, start with local because face to face is always better. But right. then We have the national ones as well or international and you may not feel like you belong because, oh, look at all these professionals. No, it's okay. It's really okay to reach out to people. And I mean, LinkedIn has been great for that too. Mm -hmm, Um, It really has. I found a lot of guest speakers for my courses through LinkedIn. Go ahead. John.
0: Yeah, there's so there's so many safety groups on LinkedIn. I, I probably belong to 20 different safety groups on LinkedIn. And the the magic part of that is you can post a question and safety professionals chime in and they offer advice or they'll offer an asset or direction and lots of them. And so I, I think that's I think that's right now one of the fastest ways for us to get information.
1: Right. And I just want everybody to know, too, safety is not an algorithmic if, then, do A, do B, do C practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think too many people think that like, oh, mm-hmm. can you send me the boilerplate of a respiratory protection program? Well, not really. You got to build it yourself. And here's the, I was thinking about this the other day. Yesterday I was um, rebuilding the built-in seating on my deck mm-hmm. and my kids are like, why is it taking you so long? Because I have to make the cuts based on what the angles are of the previous layout. It Mm -hmm. has to be customized. It's through trial and error. I take a measure. I make a cut. Oh, that wasn't right. So, you know, maybe I have to grab a new board or maybe I have to shave a little bit off. And they were wondering why I was cutting a board eight, nine, ten times. (laughs) It's so it fits with Mm -hmm. what I'm given. And so I want everybody to understand that, too, that the way that safety needs to be practiced at your workplace may be very different than what your neighbor practices. Mm -hmm. And I believe a truly successful safety program has to be built within. Um, through iterative improvements, through trial and error, um, you can't just buy a safety program.
0: Right, right. So we can we we're getting our we're getting our ideas. We're talking with people within our network about how people. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you, and you can use those things as your framework as your guide, so that you're not starting from square one. So in addition to contacting your network and building a network. What other tips for someone who's just getting started and is looking for a way to educate themselves?
1: Sure. I mean, there are a lot of great resources out there and hashtag um, shameless plug vivid has very good offerings. So as HSI, (laughs) who's the parent company, Uh, don't be afraid to call your local OSHA office with questions. If you have a specific interpretation question, Uh, don't be afraid to contact, you know, if you're close to a university, you can contact faculty there. Uh, But let's, let's talk about the the certificates and specialized training.
0: Yeah. And say, Hey, Todd, before you jump into that, let's, let's um, dispel that myth about don't call OSHA. Let's talk about that for just a second, because I think that's a really good tip that people don't often think about because they're scared to call government regulatory office um out of fear they're it's going to trigger an inspection. So do you want to maybe talk about how that works? Well, yeah, because they
1: have a uh, they have a main line. Every office has a main line. Or I think through the website you might be able to submit questions now. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think but, you can. Um,
1: you just you can just state what your question's about and the operator who are the, or the receptionist who answers the phone will direct you to a compliance officer that that's their expertise and depending on the question and how customized it is they may not be able to give you a specific answer but they can give you a general answer and i give a lot of answers that way that mm-hmm. the gist of the standard means this so therefore mm-hmm. this is what you need to do and it's not like they have collar ID or GPS so they're not going to say oh I know where you are and be right there um you're just asking a question and I think that's a good thing to do you people shouldn't be afraid of of OSHA they should Appreciate what it provides us, uh, what it provides the public, and use it for goodness' sake. I mean, mm-hmm. certain states have different programs where you can actually get grants to pursue mm-hmm. safety corrections.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are great tips. And and the the act of making a phone call or sending an email doesn't give the investigators what's called probable cause, and so they could never trigger an inspection based on that. Now, if you're calling to file a complaint or report a fatality, that's a different story. But um, you know, always feel free um, to come contact your local uh, OSHA office. So please continue. You started to talk about certificates.
1: Sure. Let's start with um, probably the the most basic. And everybody's heard of the OSHA 10 and the OSHA 30. They have them for mm-hmm. general industry and they have them for um, construction. My view of these certifications are an employee is the 10 a supervisor is the 30. So mm. if you're a safety coordinator it would it's a good idea to possibly pursue the 30. That's going to give you some basic knowledge and if you have a workforce Uh, that needs to make more decisions on the fly to protect themselves. Requiring them to the OSHA 10 is a good thing as well. And there are different opportunities. I believe also, again, hashtag, you know, um, shameless plug, Vivid has access to certain things. I don't (laughs) mean to do that. These are just coming up. I don't mean to do it that way. But (laughs) they can look locally to see if there's a OSHA Technical Institute and OTI near them. Um, And there are different agencies or or companies now that provide that kind of training. So that's one option. I just wanted to get that one out there because people always ask me, um, what's the difference between the two? What does it Um, No, I think I think that's
0: good, and you can now take the course um, online from an authorized provider. And you're correct; Um, our company does is an authorized provider, and people can take them um, in person as well. Right, and then you know,
1: and I want to kind of build off of the networking things we talked about earlier. That uh, joining a local. Network or group, they tend to have monthly meetings where they bring in speakers. And that's a good way to start gaining, you know, first of all, finding out who the experts are in your area, but then to learn something. And almost every state has at least an annual, if not a biannual, safety conference. That Mm -hmm. you can go to. And then there are national events. You know, I just got back from the ASSP national event in San Antonio, and it was an amazing experience. I think there were, I didn't even count, but during the concurrent sessions, I think you had to choose between, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 different speakers and let's say there may be four of those a day for 3 days. I mean, you can count those speakers. That's a lot of different topics. Mm-hmm. And so going to one event like that, if you can afford, you know, the travel and time away from work, you're going to get a tremendous amount of information. Mm-hmm. Um and then also it's information that you can usually they give you access to presentations from the ones you didn't make it to. And so you have access to a lot of information there, but you have to organize it, collate it yourself. Um, beyond that, you know, there are the, the, the professional certifications, those are tests or exams you can sit down for. And, you know, so the gold standard, I think pretty much everybody knows is the certified safety professional, the uh, CSP is what a lot of people see it as Uh, it's offered through the Board of Certified Safety Professionals or BCSP. That's what a lot of professionals are working toward. But I, they just made an announcement, I believe a month ago, maybe two months ago, tops, that they are transitioning to you have to have a bachelor's degree in order to earn the CSP. That is oh, a, that's interesting. something that's new. Yeah. And okay. people who do not have the bachelor's right now have to complete some sort of um, online educational course through BCSP in
0: mm-hmm. order to
1: maintain their certification.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, yeah say Todd uh, you had mentioned ASSP a second ago and I think let's let's circle back to that just for a second to make a to, in case people who are listening are going what's that because there was recently a name change so the American Society of Safety Engineers just went through a renaming convention for themselves and are now called the American Society of Safety Professionals. Um, Todd can you I don't, I don't know if you can speak to this you likely can can anyone be a member of ASSP?
1: As far as I know, no. Yes. Um. And, and, and glad you brought that. I'm glad you brought that up. Um. Let let's even like rewind a little bit more. If you're listening to this, you should be familiar with something called the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire of 1911. Yeah. Because it was that event in New York City that set off the start of the American Society of Safety Engineers. But I think they are called like the um uh, casualty inspectors or something at that time
0: something like something like that i believe that our first labor secretary francis perkins worked for that entity that you're talking about right and then also
1: at the same time national safety council came to be um and and so that that was a significant event so if anybody here is listening and they're like i don't know what that is if you go to youtube And you search for the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Look for the um, documentary created by – it's like the PBS um, American Experience – Mm-hmm. I know they try to take it down, but people keep posting it. Thank you, mm-hmm. by the way, for the people who do that. And it's about an hour long. Watch that; it's, it's wonderful, it's very profound. Um, it, yeah. There are all kinds of other documentaries about how disasters led to important things, like these, you know, societies, these these agencies that we rely on quite heavily, um, but also some of the standards that are out right. as well. I, I, mean, I always,
0: I always think of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire as the birthplace of our current
1: life safety codes. Right, exactly. Um and then you know there's the, there's the um the the Bhopal incident. Uh, there was Chernobyl, you know the the um, the Deepwater Horizon. All these mm-hmm. things have given way to bringing the importance back to environmental safety and health, and the need for standards and regulations. So back to ASSE turning to ASSP. So this was a historic event. the The society is changing, it's evolving, and it's it was, and that's why the, I think this event um, that I attended in San Antonio was so important. It was historical. Um, name change. There is a new focus. They're expanding their offerings. And I, I again, I'm going to shameless plug again, um, I am going to, I'm the incoming vice president on the Council of Professional Development. And one of the things from my platform is to make training and education, so resources more readily available uh, mm. through audio, through you know video, through digital means. Mm. And I would like to make it easier for people who are just coming into the profession with no degree, no knowledge to have access to the basic knowledge. The Mm -hmm. things that maybe you and I take for granted sometimes, but we don't because you and I talk about it so often, Mm -hmm. the basic skills. Where do you start in building a safety program? It starts with auditing. It starts with record keeping. It starts with basic training. And, um, it, it, but by by providing resources case studies evidence where people can start i think we can you know actually provide a greater good you know just mm-hmm. by making that kind of information available things that a lot of people who have been in the field for 15 20 25 years you know maybe take mm-hmm. for granted
0: right right todd as as you and i are talking it's occurring to me that we're giving people ideas of like sourcing places that they can go um to find information like we're just citing assp right now you cited uh, national safety council earlier We've dropped a few other names. But when people are doing their own, let's say, just a simple Google search, and they're trying to research a particular topic on safety or look for safety programs, do you have any advice um, as a researcher On what pitfalls they should avoid, you know, just to be careful by way of sourcing so they're not getting bad information.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I don't want to, like, point out any of the, you know, the bad sources. but, But
0: But what should people look for? Like, by way of just your, as a professor, what would you tell your students if you're researching something, you know, what do you look for in a source?
1: Well one is I don't I don't accept Wikipedia <laughs> as a <laughs> right? source. I mean you can use that to direct you to another source. Mm-hmm. But I mean peer-reviewed work is of course the most reliable. In that somebody has actually written something or done a study or talked about experience whatever it might be a case study is also research mm-hmm. um, and it's been reviewed by other experts and they've deemed it acceptable. So mm-hmm. those are very reliable. Um, when people blog, you know, it's, you got to take
0: it, you got to look and find out who the person is.
1: Do right. they have the experience, the knowledge, the skill sets, the abilities in order to generate that type of information?
0: Or were they a writer for some kind of company and they have no idea they were just writing right. Yeah, to get words on a website? <laughs> yeah. And
1: I mean, I myself subscribe to a lot of different weekly uh, electronic uh, newsletters mm-hmm. and I, I, I use them just to kind of gauge it's more of a like a thermometer for me and where things are going I don't mm-hmm. really read them and go oh this is brand new but every once in a while you know they bring up a topic or provide a reference to something that mm-hmm. I wouldn't have otherwise heard about so right. you got to kind of yeah you got to take everything with kind of a grain of salt or a teaspoon of sugar helps um, the medicine mm-hmm. go down mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: um but as far as is it verifiable? Well, that's when you then go to your network. Your network can verify certain things. And so that's why I would say right. um, let's just also talk about the OSHA website.
0: That's what I was going to say. That's where I start always. Me too. It's It's an yeah.
1: indispensable source of great information, but it's also a labyrinth that you mm-hmm. and I know about. Mm-hmm. And remember I had tried to create a uh, tour video for my students and that is also on YouTube, but there's so much more to it. it Actually, just the other day, Jill, someone contacted me out of the blue because they're a consultant and they blo- They believe that um, one of their um, equipment suppliers lied to them or didn't tell them the whole truth. And so mm-hmm. we, I went and found the letter of interpretation and we talked about it. And I looked through the standard itself and found where the issues were. And we talked about it. He sent me some pictures and we resolved the issue. I mean, mm-hmm. it maybe took me 15 minutes of time online to get those resources for him. And I talked to him on the phone for like 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that it can be that easy if you know the right people and you and I both know, I mean, somebody goes, oh, how do I interpret the standard? I go to the letters of interpretation. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. I do. Or can OSHA do this? Well, I go to the field operations manual. You know, I don't try to guess things. I actually look to what it is. And sometimes I get corrected. You know, I've, I've, and again, I'm I'm on a first name basis with uh, all the local area office directors. You know, I can call them, they can call me and they do sometimes with how things are going. It's, it's developing those relationships that make those resources more readily available.
0: Right exactly so when when we're when we're talking about the OSHA website in general, um, Todd, you're alluding to the fact that it's a labyrinth it's it is very complicated to weed your way through if you're not understanding how to read the standards number one and then I, I just wanted to point out that when you and I say the word standard because we were sort of birthed into this OSHA thing as twenty year olds standard also means regulation so if somebody's listening and going, what are they talking about standard standard regulations same thing basically and uh, when you're mentioning um, interpretations, it means that for most of the regulations or standards that were written, there's been employers like anybody listening going, what the heck do they mean? And so somebody submitted a question, OSHA responded, and all of their responses are archived. And so you're able to search those on the OSHA website to see like, what did somebody else ask? I can't be the first person who's ever looked this up. And when Todd's talking about the field operations manual, it means that OSHA is really transparent. And so the directions that they give their investigators on how they need to pursue particular aspects of inspections. They're all available for anybody to read. And so the field operations manual is really that instruction book for investigators. So you can can read that too. And it's all... It's all on their website, right? And I mean,
1: you can look up uh, the citation packages the companies have received. You can see the inspection history for specific companies. We didn't even mention the uh, compliance memos, the standards memos, the technical Mm -hmm. and education memos. There are all kinds of (laughs) different things that we know because we actually had the paper version of these things before the internet was born.
0: (laughs) We did, and they 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 were and and for anybody for anybody listening, all of these volumes of things when you. you when you work for OSHA when when we started out yes Todd said it was all paper and it was and so if you've ever been to like an auto parts store in the way back where they have like that big paper auto parts book that stretches you know like maybe four or five feet across a counter and people are looking up parts. That's literally what we had on our desks except it wasn't auto parts it was instructions on how to do our job from every angle possible and so all of that lives on the OSHA website for you know if you if you wanted to really get into reading you could uh, probably teach yourself how to be an investigator Um, in you know five years it takes to read all that stuff or whatever it is. <laughs> right and I mean for my classes and
1: for Um, this, some consulting work I do, I do a mock OSHA audit and I've actually replicated the, um, citation and, uh, us, the citation packet, um, just like they have online and can build it the same way so that both my students and any customers can see what it's like. Because that's one of the biggest questions. What happens if OSHA shows up? Well, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen and how to properly prepare and that a safety program is not a binder that sits on a shelf. It's a living document. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to give you is a set of things you need to do to start evolving towards your customized safety program. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right that's right so we took that little that little uh offshoot there for a moment uh do- dove into our OSHA history and and you know if people are listening and thinking gosh you know Jill Todd could you do another podcast just on OSHA stuff let us know um because I think we'd both say yes to that um but continuing continuing on with how can you self-educate and then you know kind of going up from there if people want to continue pursuing um, educating themselves or a certificate or you know what if they want to go to college what does what does all that look like as people are working in this field. Sure.
1: No, Now, I'm just going to bring up two more references, and that yeah. is the NIOSH website is full oh, of good. great information. NIOSH is now under the CDC, so www.cdc.gov backslash NIOSH, stands for the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. Great information there. That's my secondary. And mm-hmm. then I also play around on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website, Yeah, I'm um, just too. looking at injury debt. I was on it the other day for like 45 minutes, because now mm-hmm. their reports aren't just in PDF and HTML, they're in Excel. And so they actually share data with you. So you can actually really break it down yourself if you need to. And so I, I find that stuff interesting. So
0: those are those are really good resources. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, if anybody's wondering, um, if you want to compare like your type of industry to other industries like you based on your um, particular um, NAICS or SIC code, standard industrial classification code. You can look that all up um, on the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you can search by your state. There's lots of different ways to search. So if you're looking for data, like how do we stack up? Like you're trying to prove it to your employer, like how are we doing compared to everybody else? Like every other industry or industries exactly like you or industries in your state. Um, All that information is uh, available on the BL uh, website. Right.
1: And I mean, and not just that, we could we could talk work comp, too. Um, each state has their own work comp system. In Wisconsin, we have the Department of Workforce Development and the Wisconsin Rating Credit, the Credit Rating Bureau. That it's interesting in BLS, you see that more companies are seeing the value in early return to work programs and medical management, Mm -hmm. that the incidence rate, the the, uh, transfer restriction incidence rate is higher for um, private industry than the local and state government numbers, only for that one particular statistic. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's we're not gonna get into it here, but just people should know that if you're not uh, working with your healthcare providers in both pre and post injuries, you are, you're losing money. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, where were we going? We were going to go. We
0: we were going, um, you were talking about certificate programs and then leading into, you know, if someone wants to go to college, what would they pursue? How, where would they go and how far can they take it?
1: Right now, there are different um, companies and agencies like the OSHA Technical Institute where you can go to like a one day, two day, five day um, seminar or class and get an actual certificate. You know, a piece of paper that says you attended. Now, those don't necessarily mean you have to take an exam at the end to show you've learned something. It's just you sat through it. Those yeah. are certificates,
0: and so, they're if- they're also by. Um- by topic. So if people listening are wondering, like, what could I what sort of certificate could I get? Um, myself, I've been to the OSHA Training Institute and taken like a week long course on scaffolding, everything about scaffolding, scaffolding safety, same thing with excavation, same thing with machine guarding. Um, lots of different topics. So I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, Todd.
1: No, that, that's you're absolutely correct. I'm glad you brought that up. And if you go to certain conferences or seminars, you know either locally or nationally, sometimes you can get continuing education units or CEUs, which is something you know that may not be important to you right now. But when you get a certification or a license or a designation, uh, when you actually have to sit for an exam and then um every 4 or 5 years in you know indicate that you're still continuing training then that's when that stuff becomes very important
0: yeah or if you want to use it to pursue the next job
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have my professional engineering license. I've got my CSP designation. I've got my CIH designation. So I have to go through a lot of continuing ed and track that stuff and to make sure to demonstrate that I you know, not only did I pass the exam years ago, but I still earn it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can still practice and I and I've kept up. So that's something people need to keep in mind. Now, as far as you know, we've got the certificates you can get through specialized you know training. There are different types of degrees available out there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my opinion on this Mm -hmm. in that um, people don't understand the difference between national and regional accreditation. Mm. Um, there are all kinds of different accrediting educational accrediting boards out there. And what I've been told, what I've learned and what I've read is that regional accreditation is a little bit more stringent. So um, your, your land grant universities tend to be regionally accredited. They have okay. they've they've gone out of their way to be reviewed and to meticulously demonstrate that they're meeting and exceeding those guidelines. Whereas national I've also I've heard is a little bit looser. So it's, it's not as transparent. It's not as difficult. Um, And so you just, when you, when you, when you see these ads, also, (laughs) if you see a lot of ads, you know, flashy ads, question it. They're trying to sell you on something. They're trying to convince you, Hey, spend your money here. It's a lot less than these other things, but you get what you pay for people. um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, we were taught that when we were kids and it's so true that something that's easy to acquire probably isn't as valuable as something that requires commitment and time and money. Just You know, that's, that, that's kind of the rule of thumb, you know, buyer beware that they, but here, let me backtrack one second. Any education is better than none. Right. So if you, you know, if you can't afford the time or have the resources to go to one of these originally accredited programs and put in the time and effort. If online is all you can do, good enough, you know, mm-hmm. at least it's something to help you practice. Now, also, you may get into it and try it and say, you know what, I can get this stuff on my own. Maybe it's not worth your time. And that's fine, too. But those regionally accredited programs hear your issues. We hear you. And we are attempting to provide, make ourselves more um, available. To you, mm-hmm. but again, it's still going to have the rigor of the classroom. And I mean, when you take an online class, that puts a lot of the responsibility, a lot of the onus on the learner itself. It, there's just it's kind of the difference between working out at home and going to the gym. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go to the gym, there's other people working out. You have a greater variety of equipment, and you're already there. Might as well sweat. When you're at home, you know, uh well, I, I could have a piece of chocolate cake and watch my show, or I could get <laughs> on the exercise <laughs> bike. Well, the exercise <laughs> bike has all my clothes hanging on it, so let's just get the, you see what I mean. It's, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it takes a lot more self discipline uh, to uh-huh. do stuff on your own, um, but you know, again, the the land grant, orig- you know, regionally accredited universities are tempting to find new ways to somehow simulate that through online delivery. But it's and taking he, us time.
0: Yeah, and you're doing it right now. I mean, you offer online classes um,
1: for your students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I do require us to do. You know, I I'd like to do. F- not face-to-face, but virtual face-to-face, and I'm efforting that right that right now, but everybody has different schedules, which is why the online, the asynchronous delivery is so valuable to people who are busy and can't mm-hmm. do the travel and can mm-hmm. only do their homework from 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock on a Thursday. Um, but I do try to go talk to each student individually to ensure that there's learning, but also to pry out any questions that they've held back.
0: Right, right. So, Todd, are, are you aware of any, like, um two-year degree programs in safety
1: yes yes um you can look to the technical colleges some community colleges do i know that uh uh, there's one here in wisconsin up i think it's the it's like the fox valley technical college or something Mm -hmm. they have a two-year i know that there's a a accredited two-year in like denver or somewhere in colorado you Mm -hmm. just have to look around
0: yeah if people are looking for a two-year college program what keywords would they use um in colleges what they look for occupational health and safety or what keywords if they're doing like a search
1: I would use occupational health and safety. Yes. Okay. It, you're probably not gonna have the E, the environmental, in a mm-hmm. two year. It's going okay. to be occupational safety. Sometimes they call it emergency management. I'm not sure what else they'd call it. Industrial safety, possibly. Safety management, mm-hmm. maybe one as well. But again, it's it's buyer beware. And I always look at the people who deliver things. And if I can't find out who they are and what their experience are, then I question it. You know, if, if it's a good program, then you can see who the people are mm-hmm. and whether they're worth, you know, what they're trying to sell to you.
0: Right. Right, right, and and same is true for bachelor's degrees. You can earn a bachelor's degrees in, in in safety as well. Correct?
1: Yeah, there are bachelor's degrees, there are master's degrees, and actually, um, there is a um, a doctorate offered in uh, safety through the. Um, well, again, I I have no affiliation with them, but Indiana University in Pennsylvania. Okay, they have a doctoral program, but there are different schools who have M.S. programs. My, my I have a you know my school has a completely on, online M.S. program. I think Oakland University has one. I know mm-hmm. Murray State has one. Eastern. Carolina has one that's internationally known. They have a lot of international students. Uh, ECU. Hmm. There are a lot of schools out there, but here's what you can do. If, if, if you're worried, go to the ASSP website. They have links that you know show which schools have the degrees. You can go to the board of certified board of certified. Profe- the BCSP website, let's just shorten <laughs> it because I can't see it. Uh-huh. Um, they also have a list of universities or colleges, technical colleges near you that offer these types of degrees. If you want to go to that level.
0: That's a great, that's a great tip because I, you know, I think not every college and university offers programs in safety, first of all. And it's, you know, like in, in our home state, you and I in Minnesota, there's, you know, what? University of Minnesota Duluth and the University of Minnesota has some education in safety or at least environmental but that's it in right. in the in the whole state and in Wisconsin you have what two source two universities well we yeah and, we well we yeah. got
1: stout with the MS and risk yeah. control we've got Platteville with the emphasis of industrial technology with safety and then mm-hmm. you have got Whitewater with the you know the the um, meat and potatoes: occupational safety and health.
0: Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. So it's it's good to know that um, places like ASSP have a list of of colleges if people are wanting to pursue a, um, uh, a degree program. I came out of the University of Minnesota Duluth campus with my master's degree a long time ago. You taught there um, af- long after I had left that program for a little bit as well.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's located within the Department of Industrial. And mechanical engineering. engineering, maybe it's mechanical and industrial. I guess mechanical goes first because it's the biggest part of that program. But mm-hmm. yeah, they've got the MEHS, and
0: mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so this is this, these are great tips for, for people. Um, thank you so much for sharing that piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was just, yeah. Did you have another thought?
1: I was just because we're talking about universities that, um, I just have, I just published a chapter in a new book called safety leadership and professional development. It's offered through ASSP and my chapter is on internships and co-ops, which is another option for companies that if you are near, let's say within two to four hours of a university has a bachelor's program, they probably have an internship program Mm. and, you know, maybe, you could bring in a senior who's been through a lot of it and you guys can work together and learn together. Mm-hmm. They need the practical experience. Maybe you need the classroom experience and you two can help each other build. I mean, that's a, a great opportunity. And in that chapter, I lay out everything. I talk about you know, the websites, where to find out where the programs are. I talk about what pay is, um, what are the basic requirements of an internship. Um, I've kind of been like deemed the expert in that area just because I took over that program like three years ago.
0: Right. I think that that is a very good tip particularly for employers and and people who are who are students right now as well. I get frequent calls and emails from employers who are looking to fill safety positions. And their question is where do I go? How do I look? How do I find somebody who's qualified Um, what schools can I go to? Like, Jill, where do I go? I got three calls like that last week. And I often are, are suggesting that they go to universities and look for interns so that they can, you know, they can at least get started and try some people out. Um, and, you know, get somebody fresh out of a program is one of the avenues and ideas that I give them. Um, so that's a great, that's a great tip for employers and students as well. Um, internships are powerful. Todd, do you want to repeat uh, the name of the book in case someone is interested in that chapter? I think that's a good idea.
1: It's it the title is Safety Leadership and Professional Development. It's um and it's through the American Society of Safety Professionals. So you can go to their website, uh, www.assp.org, and go to their I think there's like a book or a media link. And they offer it through there. Now, Jill, there is one area we haven't discussed. It just popped into yeah. my head. And that is everyone's required to have uh, worker's compensation in order to operate or, or they fill out the self-insured, you know, with their state. Mm-hmm. But typically with a lot of those policies, they're afforded time with a loss control specialist mm-hmm. and to take advantage, take advantage of that opportunity. Don't just let it go. When they call, have them come in, you know, review a program, do a mock OSHA audit. Do they do any IH testing? Um, take advantage that as well
0: yeah so a way to a way to teach yourself that's a that's a really good suggestion I offer that to people as well your workers compensation um, insurance companies sometimes through work comp but also through property casualty will have um, safety people and they're often called loss or risk control people in the insurance world um, insurance brokers um, sometimes will also have safety people working for them and so like Todd's saying anytime you know it's a resource you're likely already paying for through your premium um, that you can ask people to come in and if you have a stellar safety person who's working in an insurance company they can be you know you can shadow them and uh, it's a great way to it's a great way to learn but it's also a great way to get um, work done that you might not be able to do Uh, particularly Todd just mentioned IH testing so industrial hygiene testing Um, you know if you're trying to figure out how am I going to do noise monitoring how am I going to do air monitoring how am I going to you know uh, you know we've got stainless steel welding going on and I don't have the equipment it takes to monitor for hexavillion chromium, um, you can likely get that accomplished through your insurance carrier or through your broker.
1: Right. And also the universities sometimes do class projects. Um, Mm. I had a place this last semester where I brought in my students. We did full shift sampling for noise and we did an industrial robot, um, sort of uh, it's, its operational envelope. To figure Mm -hmm. out what would need to be guarded and what guards are available. So students need experience. And so if you're near a university, has a program, man, take advantage. I mean, you have to plan that stuff, you know, months in advance. And yeah, you got to put up with students and, and professors, but you may be able to get some information you hadn't had prior. And that's probably the most important thing.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, um, Todd, are we are we leaving anything off the table by way of uh, giving people tips about how to educate themselves? I'm kind of rewinding on what we've talked about. Are we missing anything?
1: Um, if we are speaking to the people who are, you know, have just gotten into safety and they're 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 afraid, they're not sure what to do. Um, I review people ask me to look at programs all the time. And for beginners, what I typically see is that you're just basically reiterating what you'll find in an OSHA standard or an OSHA publication. That's not what safety is. Mm-hmm. Safety, you know, if you want to look at like, I think it's ANSI oh, 590, Z590. What what does a safety professional do? Step one, we assess the workplace. Continual assessment. And what I teach my students is th- you have to use all kinds of different forms of assessment. There's the visual walkthrough, but that's that's time limited. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to do job hazard analyses or job safety analyses. You have to do process hazard analyses. You got to interview workers. You got to get their perception. You have to do training. There's a lot of different things you do, and each one just provides you a different perspective of the true safety picture, which is very hidden. And so the more, the different approaches you take, uh, the different perspectives you gain, it just gives you a better understanding of what needs to be controlled. And that's the second step coming up with controls because if you don't eliminate the exposure, then it's, it's a matter of, you know when it's going to happen and, and how bad it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to make sure that your training is actually providing some form of knowledge, skill, or ability to avoid hazards. Because mm-hmm. if you're just reading, you know, oh, I'm going to have a respiratory protection program. I'm going to read to them the CFR 29 CFR 29 29 CFR 1910 134. That's not helping them. You have to sample the air to find out, do they need a respirator? What type of respirator do they need? No, this is how you wear it. This is how you do a fit check. This is how you do a seal check. This is how you clean it. This is how it stores. They need to know the practical aspects. And that's what I try to teach my students is you're interpreting the standards, applying it to the workplace and just giving them what they need. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. a big, long program is not good for an employee. That's what we need to keep. That's our game plan. But we have to make it simple for them. What do they need to do? To be safe. And yeah. it needs continual updating. There, mm-hmm. We never have the right answer that's going to be sustainable um, because people change, the technology changes, the production rates change, the services change, the customer changes. So we have to regularly reevaluate what we're
0: doing. Mm-hmm. And, and keeping it simple also means not making assumptions on what people's knowledge base is either. Right. You know, I think I think that's um, something that often gets missed, um, especially if you just apply the cliche common sense. Right. It and is it, a it is a cliche and people don't know what they don't know what they don't know. And you have to like back way, way up. You, you know, you just outlined all kinds of things about respirators. Um, people don't know that some that respirators may not protect them from oxygen deficient environments if it's the wrong kind of respirator, you know, like you can't make an assumption that people understand that I've spoken with electricians who didn't understand what some electrical hazards were that they were working with. Right. You know, just like we, we can't make assumptions in our practice. We have to start at the very basics.
1: <laughs> right. And I mean, we didn't even talk about the hazard control hierarchy. Yeah. But, okay. Is, is it is it more economical to create a respiratory protection program for 30 people and maintain it? Or is it more economical to design a ventilation system so that we don't need a respiratory protection program? Right. Same thing with hearing conservation. Same things with lacerations. You know, oh, we're, we're spending all this money and all this time and all this effort to guard, you know, put protective equipment on people's arms and hands when it slows down their work, so therefore they don't wear it when we're not around and they're still getting cut. Mm-hmm. yeah, we're still spending all the money. is can we mechanize certain things, or can we redesign the work so that they don't need it?
0: <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. so as as you and I can go down so many rabbit holes <laughs> or trails, as it were, um in safety, I think that um maybe our audience might like to hear from from your perspective, Todd, as we kind of wrap things up today. Um, what do you think the future of the, of the practice of safety is? Where do you think this is headed or where is it? What do you, what do you see for the future?
1: Well, I mean, the indication is that um, we're starting to better understand who we are. Um, I don't see in any near future the requirement to practice. You must have the degree and take a license exam, Um, though I think there's going to be a distinction between that. But I think um, I I want my goal, if you will, for like uh, the the VP position that I'm going to be going into here in just uh, two weeks is that, I mean, we're going to hopefully be able to attract more people, people saying, you know, I, I need help. And we all do. Everybody, everybody needs help. Just so you guys know that.
0: Yeah, we're never done learning in this field.
1: <laughs> right. You know, by paying, you know, a membership fee, you may think, "Oh, is it really worth it?" Well, yeah, because if you think of the time and effort it takes to drive somewhere or to travel somewhere, if you can access a set of videos or. Um, you know, um, hire out whether it be training, whether it be IH work, whatever it is, because you have access to a network and you know you're going to get value out of it. That's where I'd like to see the industry go. I would really like it if we're more involved, we talk more, and we just share more ideas amongst ourselves. That's what's separating us right now. Is that too many of us are operating, I think, in silos, vacuums, whatever you want to call it. And the, the the true professionals they have their network and they're using it. And it'd just be great if we could make that more accessible. Because right now, at me. We pretty much have the loudest people talking, mm-hmm. whereas we might ha- have the most knowledgeable. And so when I go to these, I actually look at the people in the audience and the people who ask questions. And it's just interesting that you have someone up talking about a very interesting topic, but there are a couple of people in the audience who know more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> and how can we <laughs> tap into that? And so lists of experts, um, you know, people who are available, more mentoring. We need more mentoring definitely. Mm-hmm. But who's mm-hmm. going to control it? Um, who's going to manage it? That's where I see. I think there's going to be, I think companies see the value in it. I think we're coming up with more evidence that there is a financial advantage to companies who really do safety correctly. And it would be nice if that weeded out the um, the snake oil salespeople mm-hmm. who are selling <laughs> things that don't work. And and just like anything, everybody, um, just because there's a new name to something doesn't mean it's, it's, it's going to be a silver bullet um, or a miraculous cure. I I see things that are repackaged, things that work maybe a few years ago, but it's not a sustainable approach. And I like that sustainability is becoming more of a common term when we talk about environmental health and safety.
0: Mm -hmm. wonderful wonderful todd thank you so much well for the information today but also for the inspiration um, to get us to launch this podcast and hopefully uh, safety professionals are finding it helpful and useful hearing from lots of different people in our professional practice and i just um, really appreciate not only your friendship and your professional friendship all these years but also the inspiration for what we're, what we're able to share today.
1: Of course. And I just want to, again, reiterate to everybody, find us on LinkedIn. Don't be afraid to contact us. Yeah. Oh, and, and for, for those of us like you and I, Jill, you may have to email or call us several times. Don't take it, you know, don't take it personal. <laughs> we get inundated, we get busy, we travel. Um, but uh-huh. to reach out and to make those contacts, that's where you start. That's the simplest way because I know people who can spend a day trying to figure something out. Whereas if you contact or know someone like Jill or I, we can give the answer in maybe 10 minutes because we know it. (laughs) I mean, just kind of think of the time. It's- Yeah, and so that's, right. I mean, because you and I talked about, should we hire someone to mow our lawn? Should we hire someone to clean our house? Because time <laughs> is money. And yep. so I've just, you know, yep. <laughs> people are like, what are they talking about? Now they're talking, yeah.
0: Yeah, sorry. right. I'll no, that back. that's, it's it's, <laughs> it's so true. And just know that we, we never know it all. I know I shot you a text uh, a week ago with a specific clarification on some piece of the law. I'm like, I think I know this, but I need to run it by somebody else. Right. Anyway, so I think, I think you said it perfectly earlier. Your net worth is your net work. (laughs) And so please keep networking. And with that, um, thank you all so much for joining in and listening today. And thank you for your work and all you do to make sure that your workers make it home safe every day. You can listen to all of our episodes at vividlearningsystems.com or subscribe in the podcast player of your choosing. And if you have a suggestion for a guest, including maybe if it's you, um, please contact me at social at vividlearningsystems.com. Until next time, thanks for listening i